Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for a special episode. We are here in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, at an event that uh, titled Equipping the Saints. And uh, we are joined by a friend who's been with us before. But before we go any further, I'm C.R. Wiley, I'm a pastor of a church in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and I've written a bunch of stuff. And enough about me. So, Glenn, why don't you? Introduce yourself again. I'm Glenn Sunshine, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associated at Reflections Ministries. And in case you wonder why I always say those two things, it's in my contract for both of them. Um, I, also do, I also do a few other things uh, along the way. I've written some stuff, and that's it. Yeah, the reason why we introduce ourselves each time is we never know who is a first-time listener. And we don't assume that people who tune in know who we are. But we have about 10,000 listeners every episode. Anyway, uh, we're joined by uh, John. John, why don't you yep. introduce yourself? Okay. Uh, we know who you are, but maybe people don't. Okay. I'm sure in. most people don't. <laughs> uh, my name is John West. I am vice president of the Seattle-based Discovery Institute, sort of a think tank, probably most known for the work it does in supporting the idea that nature shows intelligent design, but also economics with George Gilder and a lot of other things we do. But So I'm vice president there. I co-founded our Center for Science and Culture with Steve Meyer that deals with intelligent design. And I, my interests are eclectic, range from the old-style films of Walt Disney from the 1950s and 60s to C.S. Lewis to J.R.R. Tolkien to religion and politics in America and then to the impact of scientism and scientific materialism on America. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about the Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. yeah so, so give us the, give us your, your, your sort of, your yeah. kind of the, the elevator speech and what is going on with evangelicalism and Stockholm yeah. Syndrome and all that. Now, might need to bring people up to speed on what the Stockholm Syndrome is. It's, it's, it's weird, but it's Stockholm real. Stockholm Syndrome <laughs> Christianity, what is that? Um, let me just start. I started down this road. Uh, I was a college professor for 12 years, tenured uh, chair of my department at a, what I would call a formerly Christian institution, although it still says that it's Christian, but... Um, I know the scene. And I, it, it was curious because when I dealt with my colleagues, and even if I work at Discovery where I deal, we're not explicitly Christian, but in, in some ways we are like a Christian ministry, and we certainly deal with a lot of Christians and Christian academics and Christian leaders. And I kept noticing that more and more uh, Christian leaders, professors, journalists, pundits, they seemed to have more in common with the secular elites than they did with their fellow Christians. Right. And I, I sort of began to wonder about this. And after my reflections on this, I came up with this idea of Stockholm Syndrome Christian, Stockholm Syndrome Christianity. Now, what is that? Well, the Stockholm Syndrome goes back to the early 1970s when there was a bank robbery in Sweden. Of course, and, it would be sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, this guy who escaped, he was an escaped convict, and he took over a bank and then got them to bring another convict, and they had like a submachine gun. But very interesting, he held four people hostage. He wasn't all that nice. At one part, you know, he was threatening that he'll shoot one of them in the leg uh, because he wanted to show the police that he was serious because they weren't doing everything that they wanted. So ultimately, this all ended, and they were captured. And then something really strange happened. Those four hostages began to express more sympathy and a closer connection to their captors than to the police or the authorities, who they actually were expressing antagonism toward. In fact, one of them later said, and I think this 
hostage actually recognized that there was something strange going on, that when he was in the midst of it and this uh, person was threatening to shoot him in the leg, he was grateful to him because he wasn't going to shoot him in the head. <laughs> and so well, out yeah. of this, some psychiatrists came up with the idea of the Stockholm Syndrome. And it basically refers to when you're being victimized or abused, that you end up identifying more with your abuser and taking their side than actually with your fellow victims. And there's, as a scientific diagnosis, there's a lot of debate over whether it's real or not. I do think, not just the Stockholm case, but there are lots of cases where this does seem to be real, whatever you call it. And yeah. I actually think that's a good description of increasingly our, what I would call our Christian leadership classes. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think you're onto something. Uh, I've noticed the same phenomenon. And uh, you're, you're right, there's a, there's a sense in which uh, the identification or the, the tendency for, for some elites, to, and when they think about themselves, is to say, that's my team over there, not the people that confess Christ with me on Sundays. They're kind of an embarrassment to me, frankly. They are an embarrassment. That is how people are viewed. And so I, so I think this is an interesting way of understanding. I mean, I think as Christians, we are culturally captive in a, in a increasingly hostile culture. And especially if you're gonna become a pastor, a journalist, a pundit, a, you know, someone working in Hollywood, uh, in anything forming culture, you will have gone to graduate school or you would have been enmeshed in cultures that are actively hostile to Christianity for much of your life. And so it's kind of natural if you're not really being very careful and you know, listening to God very carefully to end up identifying more Mm -hmm. with those people who, and those elites, that's your peer group. Right. And then you begin to look increasingly that your fellow people in the pews are the problem. Right. They're right. always at fault. Right. Yeah. And your, your role in this strange sort of elite is that uh, you are the person who's supposed to be the kind of the liaison to those people over there. We, we see this with people like David French or Russell Moore. You know, the, they, they, they get into the New York Times, they get into you know, the Atlantic, principally because there are men uh, in, you know, evangelicalism. I would say it would not be too much to say that the cultural mess that we're in is not because of the bad old secularists. Okay, they're going to do what they want to do. We have plenty of Christians in places of power in various ways who ha have been called to various levels of authority. The reason we're in the cultural mess is most of our, not, well, maybe not say most, but many of our Christian leaders in these leadership classes are Stockholm Syndrome Christians who identify more with the elites. And so rather than be you know, salt and light, they're actually uh, actively facilitating, at least turning a blind eye, and at worst, actively facilitating the cultural rot. And so again, I think if we're, it's often, I think, easy for us as evangelical Christians to look and say, well, this is something that the bad old guys are doing, the ACLU is doing this, or Richard Dawkins, the atheist scientists are doing. Yeah, yes, they are doing things. But I say the reason we're, where we're at right now in America is not primarily because of Richard Dawkins, it's not because of the ACLU, it's not because of Joe Biden, it's because so many Christians, leading Christians, are actually indistinguishable in their worldview and identify more with those secularists than anyone else. And had they been more faithful, uh, I think we would be in a different situation. Well, that brings okay. up the, well, go ahead, go ahead, We have to ask the question, why are they doing that? Yeah. And I think that there, that there are at least two reasons why I can think of, you know, that, that are somewhat 
speciously positive, okay? Um, one of them is that uh, they, okay, so let, let's take something like CRT, um, or more broadly, critical theory. Uh, critical theory is actually a Christian heresy. It's based on an element of truth, but it's pulled so far that it distorts everything else. That's why critical theory can be appealing to Christians, because they recognize the element of truth in it. They don't recognize necessarily that it's, it pulls everything else into distortion, but because they recognize that, you know, yeah, you know what, oppression really is wrong, and there are situations where people do things that are racist. So I guess we really need to do something about that, and that means I gotta work with you guys, and I, 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 and I gotta agree with you. You know, so, so there is an element of truth that they're working with, but they don't understand all the poison that comes with it. Um, the second part of it, I think, is that uh, they're afraid that if they join the unwashed masses, they will lose any possibility of influence in this group. And so you have to kind of side with them in order to be able to provide at least some form of Christian witness to them. Now, of course, in the process, they don't. But, yeah, yeah, I, I, but was, I think these are, I think these are the, well, I, I the think dynamics that, that are going on. I think that's heads. what they tell themselves. Glenn. Yeah. I don't think that's what's actually going on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, that, I, I think that's the rationalization. I need right. to be, you know, I need a place at the table. Uh, but what the place at the table looks like is um, the, the crumbs that are thrown to the dogs. Mm -hmm. It's really what it what I it think that's very, what you said, Glenn, is very insightful. I do think that part of it, the first thing you identify about, uh, you know, because people have an inadequate view, not a Christian view of good and evil, that they think that if there's anything true in something, then it must be good. Whereas, uh, you know, the traditional Christian view, going back to Augustine and before, is that, I mean, actually every lie is based on truth because Satan can't create anything. All he can do is twist something good. So by, right. by definition at core, every lie is going to have some truth in it. And if Christians more fully internalize that, they might be a little more skeptical of certain things. But I, I, although I think that's true, I actually think for myself in looking at how we got to this way as a evangelical say, Christian subculture, I think there are three big things that sort of lead into it. Um, one is for Christians, we're listening to the wrong voices. Um, I know over the years, people who have been very Bible-believing parents, others, you know, been part of Bible-believing churches even before this one, but where are they getting their information about the world? It's not from World Magazine. It's not from uh, reading you know, good Christian books. It's not. It's in, it's almost indistinguishable from the same news media organizations, the same whether it be the Atlantic or the New York Times, or now you know. Where do you search? You go to Wikipedia or you uh, search on Google, where these search mechanisms we now know, if you didn't know before, are really slanted to give you the results that they want. And it's not gonna be the results that point you in that direction. And so we uncritically, if you actually look at from media, social media, you know, algorithms, uh, celebrity culture, Christians love the idea. It started going back to the 70s, if not before. Anytime someone said, I'm a born again Christian, then ah, oh, they must be wonderful. I mean, 
this became so absurd when, uh, when you actually had Larry Flint, who was at Hustler <laughs> Magazine, say, I'm born again. And then he went on and kept being a pornographer. Okay, but people were so excited because it would give them, I guess, uh, out of their insecurity, it makes you feel good that a celebrity says that they're a Christian. So I think we're, so one thing is we're actually paying attention, listening to the wrong voices. We're actually being shaped by the very same voices as the rest of the culture. Garbage in, garbage out. The second one is, and it's sort of related to that, is we want to please the wrong people. And I saw this at Seattle Pacific University where I taught. So when I began there as a faculty member in the mid-90s, there was a book uh, that was out at the time called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by um, Mark Knoll, historian. It's actually an interesting book. I think there's a lot of good things in it. There are some not so helpful things in it. Um, I mean, he actually attacks what he calls biblicism and that we're, we're focusing on the Bible too much. And I mean, there's, and what I saw, although fairness to Mark Knoll, at least in, in his original book, he did say that being, having good scholarship isn't just you know, being liked by the secular culture. But what I saw among my colleagues and other colleagues at other Christian colleges is what they took from that book is we need to be respected. By whom? By the New York Times, by the power that be. And that our test of whether the evangelicals have a mind it's not how faithful we are to the Bible or the historic Christian faith. It's how well liked we are by, at SPU, you actually had uh, uh, colleagues uh, in the science departments who prized their relationships with secular scientists at the University of Washington. So whether they were liked by them or whether they were liked by, you know, again, national entities that you really shouldn't want to be liked about. So I think that's the second thing. We listen to the wrong voices. We want to please the wrong people. And I saw that in the academic subculture among the Christian academic subculture all the time. And then the final one is I think we tolerate the wrong leaders. And I think we should be respectful for authority. But I'll give an example that I'm, I'm actually working on a book on this, not done with it yet. Um, people in our congregation know this because they had to suffer through a Sunday school class where I previewed some of the material. But let's take one of the largest megachurch pastors in America right now. His name is Andy Stanley. <laughs> um, he has tens of thousands of people. They have a network of 150 churches. In the uh, Presbyterian church that I was prior to this, where I was an elder, we were told you know, by the pastor to read uh, you know, one of his books to, to learn. So it's not, to, although he's Baptist background, he influences all over. His book on, uh, you know, about irresistible, uh, about Christianity, is largely an attack on the Old Testament, which he calls the obsolete testament. It's heretical. It's, it's bad news. Yeah, but was, my question a, is, a, he has a, elders. I've yeah. checked in that congregation. Why wasn't he fired? Right. Well, because he's Andy Stanley. Okay. I was at <laughs> Seattle Pacific University when the president tried to, and successfully gutted the board from church control. And the board, who wasn't a party to it, um, didn't fire him. And I've seen this in Christian institution after institution, that those who are in places of authority, particularly board members, elder deacons, turn a blind eye, and then they wonder why you reap what you sow. I mean, like, going back to my case at Seattle Pacific University, just two years ago, the faculty voted, this was put in the local newspaper here, by over 70%, a vote of no confidence for the board of trustees at that 
still identifies as an evangelical Christian school. Why? Because they would not repeal their statement on biblical marriage. Over 70%. That is no longer a Christian school. And people were horrified. Well, how did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It happened because actually that same board of trustees, not exactly the same, but over the last 20 years, turned a blind eye to the people who were hired. And when the board was actually reconstituted to include people who may not be biblically faithful, the, the board members who were biblically faithful, when they controlled it, allowed it. And so I'd say that that tolerating of, and no accountability, no church discipline, no self-discipline, you get what you, you know, if that's how you're acting, that's, you're, you're going to get something. And it's not I, I, I like to, re- you know, these are great, and I'd like to kind of take maybe each of no. you in turn. Let's, let's go back to the re- being respected by uh, the sort of the, if we're thinking about the academy, yeah. sort of the larger academic community. Um, I was at a Harvard Divinity School. I knew Harvey Cox. Harvey mm-hmm. Cox tried to get Mark Knoll on the faculty, and they voted him down. In other words, if you're Mark Knoll and you're teaching at yeah. Notre Dame, uh, there's just, you just, you know, even though people might say, well, this, is, this guy is kind of the epitome of the sort of person who can command the respect of secular scholars, uh, if, if he can't actually pull it off, then just give it up. <laughs> and you know what I'm getting at, is just be yeah. faithful. Just do, do what you do. And I, th- I actually think that that commands far more respect. You know, one of the things that really comes across when a person is in- insecure and wants your respect is that he wants your respect. You know, in other words, it, he's not uh, operating from the, a, a kind of confidence that I'm here to tell you something you don't know. He's here... Uh, basically de- demonstrating that I really need you to like me. And when that's uh, conveyed, uh, it actually undermines the respect that the person uh, is seeking. There, there's another dimension to this, too. Everybody who goes through a Ph.D. program intending to be a professor wants to be in a Research One institution. I didn't make it, but everybody wants to do that. And if you're in a Research One institution, there are certain things that you've got to do. You've got to be publishing. You've got to be publishing in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, You've got to get your book out in a prominent press. You've got to do these things. If you don't do these things, you don't get tenure. You have to, if you're going to go that route, if if that's your ambition, if that's your goal, if that's where, where you think you need to be, You've got to play that game. And that means you've got to get in bed with them. Yep. And, well, the people you sleep with influence you. Well, and, and what's going on is uh, many of those same institutions, those you know, ostensibly Christian colleges, they take pride in the fact that you got into that journal or you're, you were published by Oxford or... Yale or whomever. And they take pride in the fact that we just hired a guy who came out of Princeton. Sure. We hired a guy who came out of Yale, Harvard, whatever. Right. That, that, that boosts them up in the rankings because we have this great scholar who came out of an incredibly secular program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what you're getting at too is, you know, there are a lot of different forces at work that are kind of eating away at Christian conviction. So uh, you think about 
what you just noted, uh, you want to be as high as you can be ranked in the U.S. News and World Report, you know, annual, you know, ranking of colleges. And um, now, what do you, you know, so, so how do you, how do you uh, adjudicate that with all the, these other demands? Um, seems to me that when schools like the one you formerly worked at and uh, one I formerly worked at were starting out, they didn't have this sort of need to be respected and liked by the larger world. The, the, the task was a different task. The task was discipling the next generation, making sure that they had the intellectual equipment to be faithful, and that was the primary thing. And, but let's go back to the early 19th century, where you have the fundamentalist-modernist controversy, and the fundamentalists lose, and they just basically say, well, if you're going to be that way, we'll pick up our marbles and go home. They start their own institutions. They become incredibly uh, insular. And as a result, they have no influence on the intellectual direction of the culture. Is that the kind of thing that not playing the game leads to? Well, and that's the, the you know, it's, it's kind of a, you're in a tight spot, you know, you're, you're between the rock and the hard place. Um, at the moment, I can't think of a scholar that uh, commands the respect of the larger intellectual community, even though that seems to be, you know, I'm thinking of a Christian scholar, even though that seems to have been the agenda or the objective for the longest time, at least since Mark Knoll's book came out. <laughs> Which, what year was that? It was like mid-90s, was yeah, it? Early 90s? 1994, I think. Or yeah, yeah, I remember it was, it, was kind of, it was a pretty big deal. It was. And, you know, the funny thing about this, the situation at Harvard was is, is Harvey wanted him. Mm. And basically, you know, his, his statement to me was, uh, if we're going to be what we claim to be, which is sort of the meeting place of the various theological traditions in America, then we need to have some evangelicals on the faculty. And uh, the faculty voted it down. They said, that's one step too far when it comes to the diversity thing. <laughs> Literally, that's what Harvey told me. He, he kind of laughed as he said it. And, uh, but he, I could tell that he was also deeply disappointed uh, because I think he had, so yeah, obviously he's a liberal Baptist main, you know, you know, guy. Uh, he wasn't trying to you know, go to bat for our team because he thought uh, we're right. He just thought, hey, America is a, a place where all these different, you know, uh, different religious traditions are. We need some of those folks here, too. Yeah, I mean, in, in defense, of, I think, Glenn, this, it's a really, it's an important question um, about the, the, say, the fundamentalist route. I myself, you know, the fundamentalist modernist or fundamentalist versus evangelical, I, I think some of those categories are a bit <laughs> tendentious. Um, and let me say this, you know, the, as you know, I mean, the, the early meaning of the fundamentalist came from this book uh, series, The Fundamentals, which were really defending what you would call, you know, Nicene Christianity, you know, it was, you know very basic uh, Christian truths against the, the culture. And I think, uh, the reason that United States, on basically all measures until recently, um, on whether belief in the Bible or belief that there is a hell or belief that Jesus is your one way of salvation, is not primarily because of the Mark Knowles of the world. 
It actually is because of those people who founded their own institutions and then did raise them. So I, I, I think actually, if you're actually looking at real cultural influence, by which I say how you actually form and preserve people's ideas and fundamental beliefs, that those who founded these, you know, the, the second tier uh, Christian colleges post when the 19th century, when Harvard and all these other places that were founded as Christian institutions, you know, weren't, um, actually had a lot of influence uh, on society. But, I, I'm, but I, I do think that they also sometimes had a way too narrow view of the world and what their influence ought to be. I, I, what I would, so I don't think it has to be an either or, and I don't think it should be an either or. If I had to choose between one of them, I would probably choose be faithful. And I think, you know, when you bring up Mark Knoll, what kept coming back to me is C.S. Lewis. Um, so Mark Knoll ultimately, you know, got to Notre Dame. He, he does have some manner of respectability. Who, 50 years from now, is still going to have more influence Overall, it's going to be C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, for almost his entire career, was not even a college professor. He was a tutor, which is sort of the lowest rung in the British system. And he, you know, he sort of hated it because you had to read all these papers by students who didn't know anything. And he, but I mean, he patiently did it, but it was just, it was, it was awful. And he only became a professor at the end of his life, in, in the ending decade, because of the really the behind-the-scenes efforts of his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who saw what Lewis was going through and, and basically got Cambridge because Oxford kept voting Lewis down as a professor. Now, it's, uh, yeah. it's good to get into why he was voted down. It was because he was popular. Yeah. It was because he was on the cover of Time magazine. It was because he wrote a book uh, called the screw tape letters because he was popular in defending Orthodox Christianity, right? I right. mean, so I mean that that and so it's popular for the wrong reasons, right? And so so in many ways, if you looked at Lewis, you'd say uh, as an academic he was a failure. Now he wrote some terrific, uh, you know, allegory of love, other you know. But that's the other thing about this. But. He was first-rate scholar. They could not deny that. They just denied him the title. Correct. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is that some of the people who so try so hard, I, this goes back to you know, what you were saying, is who try so hard for respectability to, so to have influence. They're not going to have influence. They're, they're not going to, I mean, I, 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 I think of um, one of Francis Collins's friends, uh, Carl Guyberson, who is now. Well, I know so, Carl. <laughs> I go yeah, way I mean, back but, with Carl. <laughs> so Carl wrote this book that Francis Collins gave, endorsed uh, called Saving Darwin. And it was supposed to be, you know, how you can make your peace with Darwin full-fledged. Have him come into your heart. Fall. Maybe yeah. have Darwin come into your heart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, it was published by a secular publisher, Harper, uh, and it didn't do all that well, but was very interesting because it was sold as, well, this is a, it sold a place like Christianity Today as, well, this is the way that you're going to make Christians acceptable. Near the end of the book, I think is when he talks, he talks, well, why after he goes through all these things, he doesn't believe in a fall, he doesn't believe in this, he doesn't believe that, he thinks we're, we were begun selfish to begin with. So why do you even believe in God? And credit to Carl, he actually asked the question in the book, so why do I continue to believe in God? And what does he say? Well, it's, um, I have a church that I love and we'd have to leave, that would be heartbroken. My parents would be heartbroken. It would, these were all sociological reasons. They, it, was, it was really sad. And the thing is, I remember one secular reviewer of that 
This did not, this was not a book that convinced them. This actually made them laugh with scorn because he didn't have the courage of his convictions of that he was, I mean, he actually laid out the reasons not to believe in his faith. And at the end, well, why does he continue believing? It's just because, you know, he, it would not be fulfilling because he'd have to leave his church. He'd have to leave his college. That's not a firm standing place. And I'd say that what happened with Carl, I, I think in some sense he still identifies as a Christian, but he then did leave his college under interesting circumstances. But then after that, he published a book with the Unitarian Universalist Press, uh, really, again, even more vigorously denying the fall, denying that Jesus was really anything special or didn't think, and you know, most of things about Christianity was just made up by Paul. It was, I mean, it's, just, it's liberal theology 101. It's like this guy isn't even, I mean, it's, it's hard pressed to call him a Christian. And he, because once that's, once you start down that route and once you get your validation from the wrong people, it's not going to stop. Well, this, and, is why I, I, this is why I, I knew that Francis Collins was a fraud because I knew Carl, and I knew they were friends. Yeah. Yeah. They, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely serious about that. Yeah, I, you, you were, you've been talking about Francis Collins on and off for a while, usually off <laughs> mic. Um, but but um, the thing that I think we constantly forget is that Jesus said we're never going to be popular. Yes. If they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. Um, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of things that say, don't do this. Don't go running after popularity with the wrong people. Why do we keep doing it? I think it's rhetorical question. Yeah, it's human nature. But again, if you're listening to the wrong people, trying to please the wrong people, and then if the, the, the people who are called by God to exercise you know, authority and accountability don't, then I think you're going to get what we have. And Francis Collins is another good example, because you can see this level of compromise. It's on uh, what I saw at Seattle Pacific. It, it was also belief in the Bible. Most of the theologians there didn't really believe the Bible was historically true. That's what they taught to kids. And when they would come in to me for, you know, during office hours, I'd try to counteract it, but I wasn't, you know, a theologian. But it, it did damage. It did real damage to those students. Uh, but you see it in the era of science, and Francis Collins is a great example. How did he get to the head of the NIH? It was because um, he became indistinguishable. And in fact, I remember what, one of the uh, things that I think is the most damning of his, in a way it's praiseworthy, a uh, uh, secular journalist was writing about him, about how all the concerns of people when he was initially appointed, because you know, here's this evangelical Christian, so of course it must be awful, but how he had won their respect because basically, whether it be embryonic stem cell research, late-term abortions, eugenic abortions, LGBTQ, whatever, he was the same. So you saw Meg Basham's piece uh, that she did on Collins? Meg Basham? Yes, I did. I will say, I wrote several pieces five months earlier. Uh, okay. That had almost <laughs> the same material. I mean, I, Megan's stuff is great. Yeah. And I think she's, hands down, probably the best reporter of what she calls Big Eva uh, right now. And I know she's working on a book. I'm sure that will be just fantastic. Yeah, well, she's going to be on Pugcasters soon, so. But in, in October, uh, so her expose uh, came out in like February of 
2022. In September and October, I wrote a series of things, both for the Federalist uh, and for our own things. And I will say, Francis Collins is a really instructive case of all these maladies because he got so popular because, well, he has an inspiring story. I accept that he has, accepts Jesus as a savior. Inspiring story from atheist to Christian. And so, and then he got on the cover of Time magazine. And he had all these, and so Christians want validation from that. And so they look up to him without actually looking <laughs> under the bed, so to speak, or looking what, what they were actually joining. So, he, so he, here's a question. You've given him a lot of credit by saying you believe that his conversion story, story is credible. But you've also listed a number of things that we have a very difficult time reconciling with the traditional Christian faith. At what point do we say this man's apostate? Um, well, I, I don't think he You're is, not a church uh, elder, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I... No, 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 I, no, I know. I mean, the, 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 I'll say the original title of my... One of the articles I wrote was The Appalling Moral Failure of Francis Collins, and I got so much pushback on that, even from some colleagues, that I changed it to tone it down. So I've got... But I will say... But this tells you something about the almost incestuous relationship of the evangelical leadership classes. That's it. So when I came out, and I, and I made very clear that I wasn't questioning his Christianity, but you're right. I mean, when it comes to uh, his belief structures, I think those are, are diametrically opposed to Orthodox Christianity. So what, however one wants to label that. That's what um, we usually call a heretic. So, so, so <laughs> but, but simply pointing out those things, most of the, the, I got a lot of pushback from a lot of people, including some So scientists. people can push me against me. So, you know, so. <laughs> but, but when they, they did, I'd ask them, so what did I do, you know, what did I say that was wrong? And it was almost, there was nothing on that. It was, you're right, right. well, you're just, you're not being kind to this. Someone shared with me, and I won't name the person, but a, a leader of a major Christian organization who in a private email was attacking how dare I just, and I must, really should understand that because, you know, to go into the government, basically he had to make, yeah, you know, yeah. compromise. Well, no, you don't. Yeah, there's a guy named Daniel. No, you don't. I mean, let's. You don't. I mean, how much do you value the gospel or being faithful? And I, I just, and the number of damage, but here's where are not the pastors we know, maybe some we know, but, but the, fed into this. I was at a conference once where a pastor who I know wouldn't have agreed with. Collins on embracing Darwinian evolution, abortion, wouldn't agree with it, yet he touted him before the congregation as you know, the greatest living scientist because he was a Christian. That pastor who obviously hadn't even read Francis Collins' book, and he was a pastor of a large church, you know, a smaller megachurch, it's like there has to be some culpability there of, of, of pastors and other Christian leaders who glom on to people Tim Keller. Tim Keller, uh, I've learned a lot of good things, like Tim Keller, from, his, from uh, some of his books, particularly earlier in his career. He was one of the biggest, joined at the hip with Francis Collins, and actually hosted private seminars to get Christian leaders, Christian theologians, Christian journalists, to basically buy into unguided Darwinian evolution um, through the Biologus Foundation, and even though this was against some, some doctrinal statements of his own denomination, Keller hosted these, used his prestige to get them there. 
When he was asked, I've heard through the grapevine, when he was asked, well, why are you doing this? Well, it's my friendship with Francis. That's how it works. And I've known other people who facilitated Francis Collins before groups of journalists who were doing, well, of my friendship or this or that. Okay, I can understand some of that. But here's what I don't understand with Tim Keller. And I know because I, I, where I'm at, we actually invited Tim Keller to, okay, we have funding from a Christian foundation you support. Why don't you hold, will you host, will you invite the same group of people to people who are skeptical of, you know, unguided Darwinian evolution? Name your time. Crickets eventually heard back from the assistant. Well, Tim, it, you know, it would sort of be interested, but you know, he doesn't have any time in the next three years to do this. And of course, we hadn't named that. And maybe sometime in the future. Okay, when you're using your friendship to promote something that your own denomination and you, you yourself are supposed to not be for, and then you're actually actively censoring, not willing to use that to actually give the same exposure to say more a more orthodox view. That's a pretty serious issue. And, and it's not just that. Religious liberty, rights of conscience. Tim Keller, David French, really good examples of this. So, so uh, um, and uh, there was a dry run for you know, COVID. There were a lot of issues of religious liberty. Certainly the things on gay marriage, there have been a lot of things on religious liberty. But there was, a, in about 2010 and 11, in New York City, some of you may remember this, uh, World Magazine, among others, co covered it very well. Uh, a lot of ethnic, you know, black, Hispanic uh, churches that you know, didn't have a lot of money were renting school facilities for Sundays for their worship services. That's what allowed them to meet in New York City. The New York City School District decided that, you know, everyone could rent, but we weren't going to allow churches. That was going to kill those congregations, about 50. This was a big battle for religious liberty. You know who was AWOL in that battle? Even though some of those churches were actually plants from Redeemer Presbyterian, Tim Keller. Tim Keller and his church. Well, and when they were pressed on this, and finally when the Christian Post ran an article, and they tried to get him to come, and he wouldn't, there was such notoriety that he finally issued sort of a statement. But it was sort of too little too late. I think that battle should have been a wake-up call. If the major Christian leadership, people like Tim Keller, but other Christian leaders, don't even think it's important that African-American, um, you know, Hispanic churches, other churches can meet in a place like New York City. I'm not willing to defend religious liberty on that. How the heck do you think they're gonna defend it you know, any place else? In fact, this is what you saw during COVID. It's what you saw in the, the gay marriage issue when you have people being, you know, driven to the ground in our state here. We know, you know Baronel Stutzman was a lady who was, um, the, sold flowers and didn't want to do you know, flower arrangements for gay weddings and was driven to the ground out of business by our Catholic attorney general, member of Catholic church. Um, and many Christians didn't want to say boo about it. And um, even people like, you know, Sorry to be bearer of bad news, but I know a lot of fellow Christian evangelists just love Mike Pence. I don't because and it has nothing to do with whatever you think. I'm not going to get into all the things about Trump and everything. It has to do when he was governor of Indiana. Indiana passed a religious liberty law to protect people like Baron L. Stutzman and others. It was a good law. 
and signed it. Then there was a huge outcry. And Pence folded. And what they did is they actually, they didn't just repeal the law, which would be, they passed another law that basically gave a new statutory right that made things worse than they were before the law. So it wasn't just cowardice, it was cravenness. And I understand I need to get a copy of his autobiography because I had a fellow Christian professor at a Christian institution who would say, oh no, Pence, I read, just read his autobiography and he was saying that they found a way to stand up and make it right. No, they didn't. The new law that was passed gutted it and went the other way. So you're in Indiana now. <laughs> but uh, so um, we're kind of at a point where I think in the show we should maybe make a, we, we've heard the bad news. Yeah. <laughs> Have any thoughts on what uh, we can do going forward? Yeah, I, first of all, God surprises. And if you know anything about history, um, if you were living after the end of the Roman Empire, if you were a Roman Christian, you would have thought, you know, the Vandals, the Goths come down, everything's, you know, horrible. annihilated. What, what's gonna to happen to Christianity? Well, Christians converted <laughs> the Vandals and the Goths, and you have the rise of the Middle Ages. And time and again, I mean, I even think in our own lifetimes, um, if you had asked me when I was in high school, would the Soviet Union ever, you know, you know go kaput? Would, would the Berlin Wall go down? Uh, I just said, no, but it did. So I think one thing is we need to recognize God really is sovereign. And if you think that, yes, things look bleak and, and maybe things will go into the ground and things will end up being destroyed because that happens to cultures all the time, unfortunately. But the exact opposite can happen. Um, uh, awakenings can happen. Revivals can happen. Even, you know, if the one good thing maybe about COVID is that uh, it's true that church attendance has continued to go down, but there's some indication that maybe some of the people who are still going to church are more faithful. Out of that, I think God can do something great. So, so I, I think we, should, we always need to be open to that. Would you like to establish a privatized banking system that will help you separate from the mainstream banks and get more control over your money? Join a growing community of families, business owners, pastors and churches, yes, even churches, that are learning to establish and manage a privatized banking system and enjoy the safety of guaranteed tax-free growth perpetuated by the amazing power of uninterrupted compound interest. Don't wait for the next crash. Contact Private Family Banking. They are here to help fuel the future of the family and the church with multi-generational wealth building. See our contact information in the show notes below or just email us at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Let, let me throw in an example here. In the mid-1700s, 25% of the women in London were prostitutes. The culture was rotten through and through. And if you take a look at it, you would think, all right, it's done. You know, Christianity is... Um, you know, it, it, you know, it's lost. It, except there was a problem with these, these typically lower class, poorly educated guys called Methodists out there <laughs> and evangelicals. Um, and then they started finding people like William Wilberforce and others. And through a systematic effort 
to re-Christianize the country. It's not usually put that way, but it really is. Um, it was said of Wilberforce that he made goodness fashionable. Completely transformed the society. You would think, if you were in England in that period, that Christianity was over and done with, thank you very much. England became the greatest missions center of the 19th century. Not very long after it. It can happen. It happened in America, and I have to be careful here. We're giving this podcast, but it's also being taped at a conference where I'm giving a talk tomorrow, so I don't want to steal the thunder. But I would say if you compare America in the 1770s and 80s with America in 1850, the exact same thing happened. And I will tell you tomorrow a little bit what happened, and it gives us great hope for today. Now, more practical level, though, um, I think two things, and they may sound so simple, but, but the thing is, if you really take them on, they could be game-changing. One is, first of all, in your own circles of influence, make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. That means if you're a parent, how are your kids learning? What are, where are the voices are they learning? Uh, your grandkids, your nieces and nephews. So in your circle of influence, how are you stewarding your, you know, and influencing those? Because we all have them. Maybe one pe- person, maybe five people, maybe two people. But so we should be asking God, well, how can we be an agent of, of change and of your truth and grace in our circles of influence? And there's a lot more that can be said on that. But the second one, and this may sound kind of negative, but it, it's, not, it's the principle of do no harm. And the reason I like it is because I think it's very clarifying. Uh, in medicine, there's this great principle, you know, do no harm. If you, don't, you can't do anything good, okay, but, but just don't muck it up. Don't, you know, uh, be bleeding people, uh, you know, because you, know, you don't know what else to do with them. If Christians only followed that, by what do I mean? If you're attending a church and giving money to a church that is not preaching the whole gospel, that is wimpy on truth, uh, wimpy on grace, wimpy on, not really reflecting well. And if you're going there primarily because, why? Because of your social connections. And I, you know, I heartbreak when I hear examples, and I've heard examples even, you know, so the Pacific Northwest of uh, a church where there are a lot of evangelicals and the pastor comes out for gay marriage, and then even those who know better stay. Well, why? Well, because one of their spouses doesn't want to leave because they have too many friends there. That's not neutral. If you are staying in a church that is either apostate or or not a place of light, you are enabling, you're doing harm either to your kids. Now, I want to say it is more complicated than that. Some things are sort of on the balance and it is true. Sometimes you can stay and be faithful witness. Those are things you need to prayerfully work through. But overall, you're doing harm if you're actually just staying and facilitating and writing checks to that. Similarly, if you want your kids to actually have a genuinely you know, Christian worldview and you send them to a, a formerly Christian institution because you graduated from there 30 years ago and it's not doing that and you're writing you know, $100,000 and going into debt for that, you're doing harm. To your kids, you're doing harm to the culture by actually um, facilitating an apostate you know, institution. Um, you are doing harm. And so if, if where do you give your money? Evangelicals are great. They're some of the most generous people in America. They give billions of dollars a year to charitable aid. 
what organizations are you giving to? I remember early on in my life, I gave to an organization that had Christian in the name. Um, and it was you know, helping someone overseas, helping kids. And then I realized in looking into it that it actually had nothing to do with Christianity. It hadn't for probably generations. They just stuck it in their name. And so I stopped and then gave this another place. Um, but do no harm. If Christians just seriously were, were doing their own things with their own families and own churches and doing good things, but then trying not to do harm, the amount of difference would be dramatic. Thinking about um, institutions as they currently stand in terms of, you know, having been compromised, do you have any hope for their uh, reform, um, for bringing them around? Not a lot, but, but it's not for the reason you think. It actually, it's not that hard. As in, say, if you're a member of the board of trustees of a Christian institution that has formerly Christian institution, and you get a workable majority, you can do it if you pay attention to a lot of things. But in what, the reason why I say I don't have a lot of hope is I've seen in my own lifetime, the Christian institutions, not Harvard, but in, in, in my own lifetime, that have failed and gone down this, it's largely been at the hands of boards that themselves were personally biblically orthodox, maybe even active in, and, and, and biblically orthodox, who turned a blind eye and were snookered and were not willing to, act, when push comes to shove, to do what they needed to do to make the do you see? Do you think maybe perhaps, um, I've been involved in higher education for 30, 35 years. I'm a college board member. <laughs> um, one of the things I think that can be a problem is that you can have sincere and churchly and orthodox people serving in that capacity who are completely intimidated by the uh, disciplines that they're supposed to be governing. In other words, they just don't have the confidence to go in and say, you know what, this, this is kind of getting out of hand. We need to, <laughs> to That's a manipulation tactic, but you're right. Academics or experts of any sort. I know, you know, I have a PhD, I was a college professor, I like to style myself an expert on some things. So experts like to tell non-experts, oh, you don't really understand. And so if you are a college board member, especially of a, of a church-related or a college, maybe you're chosen by the church or something, so you're not an academic, the academics say, oh, it's more complicated than this, or it's that. And of course, there is some truth to that, but I, I, I'm a little bit sarcastic on this because it's just, it is, that is the manipulation tactic of choice. <laughs> and so, so what? I mean, so if I'd say that if they don't feel confident enough, then they shouldn't be on that board. Well, that's, okay. uh, that's, that's a good point. Go ahead. There, there's, there's another dimension to all of this that I don't think people really recognize yet. Um, it's demographic curves. Um, the, the, basically, when, when you're looking at college-age kids, the pig's gone through the python. You know, the, the, we've had the bulge, and it's now gone. Colleges, I saw a statistic where they're estimating that 40% of the colleges in the U.S. are going to close within 20 years. Yeah, I, I guess just the, because the demographics are there, yeah. aren't aren't there. Yeah, I, so th that actually, it seems to me, might create an opportunity, because if you have an institution that is stridently biblically faithful, make it absolutely clear that this is what they do. 
and stick to it with the board and all of that and the hiring, the other institutions may be closing down around it, but there are going to be parents who will say, that, that's a good place to go. Hillsdale's not going to have a problem. I, I do agree so, with that. And I actually think that this shakedown has already begun. In my former alma mater, they've been debating this year up to 40% of staff budget cuts. And I think that um, those that are faithful will find the audience of the faithful people. And so that, I think, is very strong. But pulling back institutions that have already gone down that path, it actually is eminently doable, but you have to have the will to do it. I guess what I'm getting at is you need to have the right kind of people on the board. And what we've, uh, you know, gone through is a, uh, well, when you think about what are, the, what are the criteria by which board members are often selected? Well, is, is he a businessman with a, a lot of uh, uh, financial, yeah. you know, uh, um, resources that we can uh, yes. maybe draw on or a, a, a really great network that maybe we can tap into? Uh, or is this, is this somebody who's gonna be a, uh, a policeman uh, making certain that we stay orthodox. Uh, and that, that's generally not what, uh, yeah. is what people are selected to be on a board to, to do. <laughs> I think the number one thing of, for being on a board is to, of a Christian institution is to keep the, the faithfulness of the institution to its calling. And I will tell you that it can make a, a difference. When I first came to the place that I was teaching, it was kind of funny when I was hired, when I finally got hired um, for the tenure track post, uh, I was meeting with faculty and one was sort of almost whispering and telling me, you know, at, because at that time they had a very biblically conservative board that actually was active and they had just uh, denied tenure to someone in the theology department because they were out there in their view. And so this person said, well, you know, you're being, this, our board is really theologically conservative and they denied this tenure. And I said, oh, okay. I did what, well, you know, privately saying, right on. <laughs> but I couldn't tell them because I wanted to get tenure and I did. But, the, but um, my, my point is that one thing of even being willing to turn down tenure of that person had a good chill factor because I saw how it meant that departments that were wanting to go in a different direction because they knew that they would then invest six years with a colleague and then they got shot down, that's exhausting. They don't want that. And so it actually had a really important impact on keeping things there. Then they got a new president. He convinced the board, don't be antagonistic. Don't, just trust us. Just trust us. We'll be good. And that was the downfall of it. And by the time I ended, Interesting bookend, so I was there 12 years. Um, wasn't pushed out, I voluntarily left because I said, why be part of an institution that is going in the direction that it was going? But one of the last things I did was try to help defend someone and wasn't successful who was denied tenure. So right when I came on, they had denied tenure to someone who was biblically heterodox. When I ended, they had denied tenure to someone who was biblically orthodox also politically conservative, was a, you know, evangelized for Christ. I mean, he, he was just a, one of the best hires while I was there. And that said something oh, yeah. for it. Yeah. And in fact, I saw his father, were no bogus, they, they said uncollegial. Well, I guess uncollegial because we had a senior faculty member say that George W. Bush was like Hitler. 
And so he, as an untenured faculty member, probably shouldn't have opposed that person and say, well, no, that's not a fair comparison. So that probably <laughs> did. Yeah, so maybe that was uncollegial of him. Right. But my point is that tell you know, in that 12 years, right. those bookends of who, same things actually with the Presbyterian Church in the early 1900s that Francis Schaeffer pointed out. You know, it started out, they um, you know, uh, defrocked someone who was, should have been defrocked, and then the way you knew it flipped was when Machen All right. did it to him. And so I, I do think that, again, Christian institutions are salvageable, but only if you have board members who have, and, and people in authority who are willing to, to put the mission and faithfulness of the institution as number one. Yeah, I think that's a good point to end on because we've gotten yeah. to about that time. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, thank you, John, for sharing. Well, thank you. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a very, I think, uh, challenging matter for us who find ourselves in this moment to um, believe that something, you know, in you know, the future could, could uh, uh, in some sense be kind of a, a restoration or a turnaround or, or a revival because it just seems as though so many things around us that we had taken for granted as being solid uh, have just melted away. But nevertheless, you know, the point you made just a little while ago about, and you as well, Glenn, that uh, God uh, uh, has a way of surprising us. And, and once you recognize yeah. the situation we're in, actually, and, and go prayerfully before God and That's repent, it. God can use that right. and wants to use that. Right. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things is when we turn a blind eye to pretend that it's not happening. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, well, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, we're glad that you have tuned in for this episode. And uh, we're grateful, too, for folks here uh, in Tacoma who have sat through this episode. And thank you, John. And thank you. good to see you, too, again. Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk, theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.